0: World Evidence and answers. One question that a seemingly growing number of individuals in recent times have asked is whether or not every word of Scripture is inspired truth. Infidels, atheists, and skeptics have long ridiculed the idea of biblical inerrancy. That is, they do not believe that the Bible, whether in its original or current state, is free from error and untruths. Let's examine this more closely. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Sukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's episode of Evidence and Answers, Pat will continue on with his series on the Bible. Here with the conclusion to his interview with guest Dr. Norman Geisler, they will discuss the inerrancy of the Bible. Here's Pat now with part two.
1: In these contemporary views have of- now for uh, over hundred years now been eating away at the doctrine of inerrancy and a lot of them have found it an easy way to make peace with their culture and if culture is contrary to christianity then you're going to be making peace with that which is contrary to your faith
2: Yeah, you know, I noticed that, you know, there are Christian denominations that held to the doctrine of inerrancy and, you know, a few decades ago abandoned that. There are seminaries and Christian colleges that held to the doctrine of inerrancy and suddenly it's no longer in their doctrinal statement. Do you say that it's because of the pressure coming from the culture and the ideas of the culture?
1: Uh, Absolutely, and you'll find that a lot of Christian colleges have drifted away because uh, they've gotten into liberal arts and uh, into the contemporary culture, and their professors went away to these schools, and they got PhDs in order to get academic acceptability, and what happens is they compromised uh, doctrinal integrity for academic respectability. The good news is that the 300 scholars in 1978 of the ICBI, the International Council of Biblical Energy, took a stand on it, and many seminaries accepted it. And the whole Southern Baptist Convention was brought back into orthodoxy. They had drifted away from it by the stand that was being taken by people. And so one denomination, the largest Protestant denomination in the world, the Southern Baptists, was brought back from the precipice of, of denying energy by Paige Patterson and many other people who took a strong stand and who stood with us and the other 300 scholars in Chicago. And so the the good news is the seminaries reversed course. In many cases, the colleges didn't. And so we lost many colleges, but we retained a lot of the seminaries and brought some back. Well,
2: that's encouraging to hear. You know, it seems like once the doctrine of inerrancy falls, and usually that seems to be one of the first that a denomination or a institution would surrender. And after that, it seems like other doctrines, just like a domino effect, begin to fall after that.
1: Well, it makes sense, you know. If the if, the, if inspiration is limited to only certain areas of the Bible, then what's going to happen? What's going to happen is you're going to say, well, here's an area that's not essential. This is a peripheral matter, so you're going to deny that, and then you're going to say, well, where do I draw the line? You know, like one recent scholar, uh, Mike LaCone, drew the line in a, in a passage in Matthew 26 where Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And right in the same passage, in the same pericope, as they would say, it goes on to say, and as a result, uh, many of the saints were resurrected. Uh, say, well, you don't have to take that as a... Uh, Inerrant, we, we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, but we don't believe that these other saints were literally raised. Well, where do you draw the line? And the same scholar, Michael Lacone, in his book, On the Resurrection, says, well, sometimes we don't know where to draw the line.
2: Yeah, that's quite disturbing. You know, I see a lot here in Hawaii, we're battling the whole gay marriage issue, and there's a whole host of churches that are coming out in defense of gay marriage. And when we point to them certain passages on homosexuality, Romans 1, or the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, or 1 Corinthians 6, they tend to dismiss that and say, well, that's either cultural or Paul meant something else, or, well, that's, you know, like Sodom and Gomorrah, that story really never happened, it's more allegorical. And so it seems like once you deny inerrancy, you can dismiss doctrines that are inconvenient to
1: you like that. Absolutely, you gotta, you've got to eliminate a lot of the Bible. Leviticus chapter 18 along with First Corinthians 6 and Romans 1 and Genesis 18 and all of these passages of the Bible, they're very clear and emphatic. They, By the way, they've discovered Sodom and Gomorrah. If they think it isn't literally true, they ought to go with uh, our professor of uh, archaeology who has unearthed uh, the real Sodom and Gomorrah and their bodies severed right at the uh, belt. There's material that... Uh, Had to come from outer space because there's nothing on Earth that can uh, produce heat that hot to produce this uh, certain rock that is produced. I mean, it's it's been archeologically confirmed.
2: Wow, it's fascinating. Now, is inerrancy an issue that we should break fellowship on as brothers and sisters in Christ?
1: Well, you don't have to believe in er in inerrancy to be saved or to be a Christian. You have to believe in it to be a consistent. Christians. So, inerrancy is a test for evangelical consistency, not a test for evangelical authenticity. Uh, you can be saved and born again and go to heaven without believing it, but you can't do that consistently because if you believe in inerrancy and you deny part of inerrancy, then how do you know the parts that have to do with your salvation are uh, true as well? So, you're undermining uh, your own faith by doing it. but. I'd rather see people inconsistently saved than consistently lost.
2: Yeah, well that's a good way to put it, you know. Now, some issues are hot button issues and uh, they don't violate the doctrine of inerrancy, but some people say that they do. You know, for example, you know, some popular hot button issues are old earth, young earth creationist view. Some people say if you don't hold to a literal 624 hour day, 6,000 year old universe, then you've denied the inerrancy of the Bible or if you don't hold to a worldwide flood if you hold to a regional flood view you deny the inerrancy of the Bible so there's some hot button issues that people say if you don't hold to this particular point you've denied the inerrancy of the Bible aren't aren't there some hot button issues like that out there that we could have different interpretations
1: well absolutely there's a difference between inspiration and interpretation and uh, the doctrine of inerrancy doesn't say that every interpretation that we have of the Bible is, is correct. It just says that the Bible is inspired and everything in it is true. What the particular truth is, you're going to have to discover by a correct interpretation of the uh, Bible. And that's important, too, but it's not as important as the doctrine of inerrancy because the doctrine of inerrancy is the foundation of... For everything that we know about the Bible. It's the foundation for the creeds that confess that there's one God that Christ died, that he rose from the dead, is a foundation of our faith, is the, is the foundation of our salvation. So we can't give up on the doctrine of inerrancy, but on the other hand, we shouldn't uh, demand that every interpretation that uh, every Christian has of every passage is going to be without error because Uh, Interpretation is a human thing and we can err, whereas inspiration and inerrancy is a divine thing and God can't err.
2: Yeah, I guess the question then is, when is one's interpretation of the Scripture jeopardizing the doctrine of inerrancy?
1: Well, one's interpretation of Scripture is jeopardizing inerrancy when he interprets the Bible to be teaching limited inerrancy, that's for sure because it undermines it when he denies one or more of the fundamentals of the faith and they're uh, stated in, in the early creeds of the uh, christian church and they're logically foundational for all of the doctrines that make salvation possible so when it comes to the essentials of the faith uh and essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and then all things charity
2: yeah so give us an example you kind of briefly alluded to one where one's interpretation of scripture would be jeopardizing the doctrine of inerrancy?
1: Well, uh, if you would say, for example, took an allegorical interpretation of Scripture, you said, well, the Bible speaks allegorically. Well, then how do I know it's not speaking allegorically when it speaks about Adam and Eve? They weren't literally true, and the New Testament says they were, in uh, Matthew 19 and many other passages. Or if they say, it's allegorically say, Well, how about Jesus' death and resurrection? If you take that to be an allegory, then you can't be saved because the Bible says clearly in First Corinthians fifteen, if Christ be not risen, our faith is in vain, we're still in our sins, and we're of all men's most miserable.
2: Yeah, now there are alleged errors or contradictions in the Bible. What do we do when we come across what seems to be a difficulty here, an alleged error or contradiction? How do we approach this being consistent with the doctrine of inerrancy here?
1: In our book, When Critics Ask, which is now called The Big Book of Bible Difficulties, we have a whole chapter on that, approach it just the way a scientist approaches nature. There are problems uh, that scientists have in understanding nature. They once didn't understand how a bumblebee could fly but they kept studying. They didn't say, hey, there's contradictions in nature and give up studying nature. The, their area is now, how does life live on thermal vents in the depths of the sea? It's too hot for them to live, but it does. they do live. So you approach it the same way scientists do. There are difficulties, but a difficulty doesn't mean a contradiction. You keep studying. And when you keep studying, the more you learn, the more you're able to explain the things that you once couldn't explain. Once I had a long list of them, and I I wrote a book with 800 of these in it, and uh, after I studied 800 of the alleged errors in the Bible, I decided that the Bible didn't have any errors, but the critics did. And the critics' mistakes were made, but the Bible didn't uh, make any. And after you you look at 800 of them, and and you find that there's an explanation for all of those, and pretty soon you say, you know, there's probably an explanation for the other ones that I don't yet understand too just like a scientist says you know we can't explain how the bumblebee flies well we're going to keep studying until we do we don't know how life lives on thermal vents but we're going to keep studying until we do know so it's a there's a direct parallel between the study of god's general revelation the nature and and the study of god's special revelation
2: yes you know and in that chapter you talk about augustine's dictum here probably three conclusions we should come to when studying what seems to be a problem in the text. Explain that for us a little bit.
1: Well, St. Augustine was a very wise friend. He lived around 400 AD, and he wrote a lot of books, and he was one of the great Christian thinkers of all, all time. And he said, when it comes to Scripture, there are really four alternatives. Either God made a mistake, perish the thought because God can't make a mistake, or the translation is wrong, or the manuscript is faulty, or you have not interpreted it correctly. So there are really only three viable alternatives. We dare not say that God made a mistake. Uh, We have to look and see, is the manuscript uh, correct? Is the translation accurate? And how about my interpretation? Usually it boils down to my interpretation,
2: Yes, you know, the Bible is not an error, but, you know, history has shown our interpretation of the Bible has sometimes been an error.
1: Right, and uh, look at all the uh, people who have identified the Antichrist. There's a, <laughs> a scrap heap of uh, books on Hitler and Mussolini and uh, Henry Kissinger and who, who else that they thought were the Antichrist. So you got to be very careful not to confuse your faulty interpretation with God's errorless inspiration.
2: Right. So, you know, one of the points you make is just because Christians have erred in their interpretation doesn't mean Christians should lose faith in what the Bible
1: teaches. No. no, Just because we made mistakes in interpreting the Bible doesn't mean the Bible made mistakes in interpreting who we are.
2: Now, Dr. Geisler, when we talk about inspiration and inerrancy and infallibility, one of the points we need to make clear is we're talking about the in the original manuscripts, right? Not the copies or the translations we have today.
1: Yeah, let's remember Augustine's dictum we just talked about. There can be errors in the copies of the manuscripts. There can be errors in the translation. There can be errors in interpretation. But there cannot be errors in the original because God breathed out the original. He didn't breathe out every copy he didn't breathe out every interpretation of the bible but he did breathe out the original manuscripts just like the original adam when he created adam he didn't have any flaws he didn't have any errors any imperfections now he sinned and got imperfections later and those imperfections have been passed on to his posterity you and i and everyone else But the original adam you can't imagine god creating an adam with one broken arm and a broken leg, you know, and cancer and and his right cheek or something. God can't make an imperfect original. It can get imperfect by going against God's way and will, but he can't make an imperfect original.
2: Right. So we don't have the originals, but what we have are copies of copies of copies passed to us throughout the centuries. And how accurate are our copies, are our modern translations to the original text.
1: Very accurate. Uh, you know, it bothers some people who don't have any originals. There is no original Aristotle, book on Aristotle, or Plato, or Thucydides, or anyone from the ancient world. We don't have any original Homer, original anything. All we have is copies. But the illustration I like to use, if I took a piece of paper, wrote a paragraph on it, said to my class, I read it out loud, copy this down and then burn the original, I could reconstruct the one I burned because where they agreed, that's what the original said. Where where they differed, that's the mistake they made in copying down my original words. So we look at all the copies, and we can reconstruct the original with high accuracy. How accurate? Well, according to A.T. Robertson, the great Greek scholar, 99.9, percent accurately other greek scholars anywhere from 98 to 99.9 not one single doctrine is affected by this 0.1 percent or less all of the essential doctrines come through if i wrote for example a text if i text uh, a friend and said you have won a million dollars i make one mistake one spelling mistake in it Will he pick up his money? Yes, because you can tell from the rest of the sins in the context what was being said. So in the Bible, there are minor errors in our copies, but they don't affect the message, and we we should all pick up the gift that God wants to give us through it, namely eternal life.
2: Yes, and with the thousands of New Testament manuscripts out there, we can... Become very accurate to what the original was, and so you make. There, a great...
1: there are now fifty eight hundred, almost six thousand, Greek manuscripts, and part or whole of the uh, New Testament. There are, on top of that, about nineteen thousand in other languages, early languages like Latin and Ethiopic and Coptic, so forth. That makes twenty five thousand manuscripts of the Bible in Greek or the other early languages. There's nothing like that in the ancient world. The most manuscripts we have of any other book now is uh, Homer. And with the recent discoveries, there are only 1,800 copies of Homer, whereas the New Testament we have 6,000 plus the 19,000 other ones.
2: Right, so we can be very confident in the copies that we have now. You know, Dr. Geisler, there are some skeptics who say that, well, you know, the biblical authors do quote some apocryphal or even heretical works. For example, in Jude 9, Jude speaks of Michael the archangel arguing with Satan over the body of Moses. And Jude here is quoting from an apocryphal source the assumption of Moses. Does Jude and other authors quoting these kinds of apocryphal sources affect the doctrine of inerrancy here?
1: No, because uh, it says that that's inaccurate citations uh, that book. If they're uh, saying Enoch in the same book of Jude was the seventh from Adam, he said the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints. That's an accurate quote. That's a truth that's contained in that book. Other things in the book may be false, but that's true because the Bible cites it as a truth. The Bible cites pagan poets three times. Acts 17, 1 Corinthians 15 and Titus chapter 1. But that doesn't mean everything the pagan poets said is true. It means that that statement is true. That, for example, evil communications corrupt good manners. And First Corinthians, uh, we're all the offspring of God. From Acts 17, it only guarantees that part of the book that is cited by the New Testament, not the whole book.
2: So, well, Doctor Geisler, you know, as we start bringing this show to a conclusion here. When it comes to the battle for the inerrancy of the Bible, where do you see the battle going? It seems like when denominations and grad schools compromise on that, there's really no turning back. They just seem to slide downhill, and it seems like you just got to start another school. It, it's hard to go back. Where do you see the battle going here?
1: That's so true. Uh, that There are very few exceptions. The Southern Baptists are one rare exception to that, thank God. Because once they start going, they usually continue to go. And that was unique because the unique nature of the structure of the Southern Baptists, they were able to take over again and get the committee and committees and appoint people to the boards, and the boards appoint the president. But generally speaking, uh, you know, it's like that airplane again, it will go left. Unless you steer straight, steer right, it's going to go uh, left. And when it does that, when it does a whole U-turn and reverse its course, then we have to start another school. And the history of theology is the history of that. You have truths affirmed and then denied, and then people have to start another one, reaffirm the original truth. There's a kind of cyclical view. It's like in the book of Judges. You know, you had sin, servitude, supplication, salvation goes round and round. And then God has to raise up another judge and try to start over again. So we, uh, the whole Bible school movement you know, in the early 1900s, the Moody Bible Institute and NIAC and the early schools and the hundreds of Bible school, uh, schools that came about came about as a result of that uh, liberalism had taken over the mainline denominations, and so we had to start schools to teach the Bible again.
2: Yeah, you know, now this may be a very difficult question to answer, but... How do we, as pastors and Christians and students, how do we safeguard our institutions from moving away from the biblical doctrine of inerrancy?
1: Well, one of the books I would like to write before I go to my reward is a book on how to preserve orthodoxy. And in my mind, I have several chapters, and three of the chapters give you the answer to that question. Don't put academic respectability over orthodoxy chapter one chapter two don't put unity over orthodoxy so often we say well he's a good brother let's preserve the you know I mean he's got little you know different things uh, that he teaches but let's not divide the body of Christ over this essential doctrine well you have to because it'd be better to be divided by truth than to be united by error And so you have to take a a stand. And another chapter uh, in the book would be don't put fraternity over orthodoxy. You say, well, he's a good brother. You know, he's a good, and I could tell you school after school uh, where they have put fraternity over orthodoxy, academic respectability, or unity over orthodoxy. And there may be more, but there's three of my chapters
2: you bring up some very good points I mean it's within our nature I guess to try to all get along but sometimes you know truth will set you free but sometimes it will offend And Jesus ended up having enemies and and so did Paul and the Apostles
1: well let's make sure that we uh, make majors out of majors and minors out of minors you know the problem with Christians is we make major doctrines into minor doctrines that's the liberal problem and fundamentalists as we make minor doctrines into major doctrines, you know. Like the age of the earth becomes a test for orthodoxy. It's nowhere in the Bible that gives us the age of the earth or how old the universe is. So it shouldn't be one of the fundamental doctrines. No creed ever made a statement on it. So we take minor things and make them into major things. That's major on the majors and minor on the minors. Great
2: words of wisdom. You know, Dr. Geisler, if we want more information on you and this whole battle for inerrancy, where can we go?
1: To the website, defendinginerrancy.com. We have 5 million hits up there. We have 50,000 people make contacts and we have a a petition up there. People can sign and take a stand. defendinginerrancy.com.
2: Fantastic. Well, our guest has been Dr. Norman Geisler, one of the Great defenders of the Christian faith of our generation. Uh, I recommend every one of his books and his website there, Defending Inerrancy. Great resource for every believer. Dr. Geisler, thanks for being with us.
1: Hey, thanks. God bless you.
0: We hope you enjoyed Pat's interview with Dr. Norman Geisler as they discussed the inerrancy of the Bible. If you found this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, head on over to our webpage that's evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources available for you, including articles and more audio for you to listen or download. Join us again next time on the air or online for more evidence and answers.